when I come in the evening, as I seem as frequently have opportunity to do in a situation like this, come and sit to offer some reflections on the teachings and the practices that we're engaging in here, I, I like to take a few moments just to express my appreciation and gratitude to the Buddha as a, as a human being who lived in a world that had its challenges just as our world has plenty of challenges and who, from where I'm sitting at least, it seems to me, gave a rather remarkable gift, an offering of immense kindness to the world in both the life that he lived, which was not easy, in so many ways it was, I think, a remarkably challenging life, but also a remarkably blessed life, very fruitful in the offering that came and the way in which we might feel ourselves to still be in the, the stream of those blessings, that goodness, that kindness that he expressed in so many ways. And it's interesting that um, his uh, attendant, his cousin, and sort of, in a way, his closest companion for many of the uh, years of his, his, his life as a teacher, um, and a wandering monk as he was in what is now northern India, Ananda. When, when the Buddha died, Ananda wasn't, what, 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 was, what he was moved to speak of was not the remarkable wisdom that the Buddha expressed, although, of course, that's kind of there, it seems clear. But what he said was, he was so kind to me. That's what he was left with, is the, the impression of this, this remarkable human being who he knew well and lived with. He was so kind to me. And there's something about that kindness that I think marks for us something we recognize as human beings, something we recognize as showing us something that we trust in deeply. And that although we talk about this practice sometimes as a wisdom tradition, it's equally a path of kindness. And of course kindness doesn't always mean being nice and never questioning or challenging people we care about. But there's something about kindness that's essential and central to what we're doing here. And so in terms of this retreat and the weekend entitled The Path of Peace and Kindness, I think in the reflections yesterday, the initial emphasis really and orientation was more towards the, the process of what it means to start to find peace in the midst of our complicated and sometimes challenging human experience, which we encounter right here. And learning what it means for ourselves to make peace with that is, it's a whole, you know, ongoing journey and a central element of what we do, what we can do here. And with peace, which goes, well, in this way, we can often think of sort of like, how do I get there? How do I get there? 
We long for it, I think, naturally, appropriately, we long for it. And so just one, one I guess, conversation that's uh, often remembered and appreciated in which the, the Zen, um, Zen master and poet Thich Nhat Hanh from Vietnam, he was once asked during while the Vietnam War was ongoing and he was in America, um, speaking and teaching. And he was asked, you know, what is the way to peace? And his response was, there is no way to peace. And could imagine the sort of, oh, really? And then he went on to say, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. And I think something very beautiful in the way in which, and, and wise and precise, in the way that we tend to project the outcome somewhere in front of us and try and get there. Of course we're interested in peace. But engaging with our experience from a place of peacefulness or a willingness to make peace with it is where peace becomes the way. There is no way to peace. It's not somewhere out there. It's the way we can engage in the situation that calls for it. Peace is the way. And in a very similar way, perhaps, there is no way to kindness. Kindness is the way in the sense that we are called not to try and become kind, but to actually see what does it mean to actually bring kindness, be kindness, express kindness in the midst of our journey. At a certain level, there's a, a way in which these two things are not so different. There's lots of ways, in fact, but at one level, one of the fundamental expressions of peacefulness could equally be understood as the base level of what kindness is all about. And it's really that willingness to allow things or others or ourselves to just exist, to just be, saying, actually, yeah, there's space here for you, for this, for me, and that's okay. And that's kind of the very base level of kindness. And of course, you know, what, what would we wish from someone in kindness towards ourselves? Let us be. Just let us be. And yet that's also the expression, or not yet, but equally that's an expression of, of peacefulness, to let things be. So this is a lot of where we work in the practice and the process. It's what is it to do that? How is it to do that for us? As an expression of both peacefulness and kindliness. To let there be space, to offer space, to give space for my experience, my heart, my mind, my body. And the experience of others, their presence, their body, their life equally. And all things, in fact, to give space to this. It's not easy for us to do, 
for all sorts of reasons, some of which we touched upon or I was reflecting on last night. And one of the things that we perhaps notice starts to stand out that makes it difficult is that there's a way in which it's, it's hard for us to accept, to allow, to meet things with kindness that are difficult for us. Because there's a way in which we believe if I don't resist them or reject them, if I allow them to be, somehow they will continue. That if I don't push them away, they'll become a permanent condition. And I'll be defined by them, or overwhelmed by them, or consumed by them. And so that sense of a basic response to that which is difficult is informed by an underlying view that we don't always recognize as operating, which is the fear that something will become permanent, or already is permanent. And it's so hard for us not to struggle with it, if that's the case. We might reflect and notice how, you know, when something's painful for us, physically or emotionally, although it's painful, it's often the fear and the sense that, what if this continues? Then I can't cope with it. Then it'll be impossible for me. I need to push it away to make sure it doesn't continue. Of course, the tragedy in that is that the very pushing away is what, entangles us with it and makes it more likely to continue to be here. But there's also just the sense of, in the, in, it's like pushing it away, pushing it away as if I don't push it away, it will be here forever. <coughs> and this fear is often something we're not conscious of not aware of. <coughs> so it's useful to become aware of it because fear as a condition, when the heart is in the grip of fear, both peace and kindness feel quite distant from us. And the interesting thing about that fear is that when we say, I can't cope, I don't, I won't be able to, as if I won't survive if this continues. Like, I can't bear it, I won't be able to bear it. The interesting thing with fear is that we're already bearing it, because it's happening and we're here. Now, we're not liking it, that's almost by definition, but we are bearing it. And our history and our memory tells me that I could be overwhelmed or, and overwhelmed for when, from when we were really little feels like annihilation. It's like the end of existence. So it's really scary. If I could be overwhelmed and therefore, in a psychological sense, annihilated, because that's what happens to an, you know, an undeveloped um, infant consciousness, it feels like annihilation to be overwhelmed. And so there's a very strong sort of wish for that not to happen, and appropriate and wisely. That, that it's not. We, we actually need support. We need help to handle the intensity of what we encounter 
And we don't always find that help there for us or attuned to us. And because of that, there's that sense of we can't go there. But what's happening is we're kind of relating to the history of our experience with the difficult, not quite realizing that we're bringing that history from when we were infants and we don't have access to a developed or mature or aware, self-aware human consciousness at that point. It just isn't there for us. It's a much more undeveloped structure. That we bring that sense into the present, not realizing it, and then project it into the future as if that's what will happen to me again and again. So I must fight, I must resist, I must push away. Nothing else makes sense from that place. But as I said, we're actually already bearing the experience. And the curious thing about fear, when we fear something, which is the anticipation of what it will be like if this continues, in this case the difficult thing, when we fear something, we're always referring to a memory of something like this that we've already experienced that was really, really difficult for us, perhaps, or probably, very likely, very difficult, but we survived it. Because we're here. We survived it. The thing that we're referring to, whatever it was, we survived it. Because we haven't got any basis for a relationship to something in the future except what we can make from the past. Which is why the mind keeps going into the past and then going with that image, that perception, that construct, which is inevitably just a fragment of the whole experience from the past. Because we can't bring the past into the present. It would take as long as it took us to live our life in order to bring our past into the present or the future. So we just bring some bits, images, fragments, ideas, concepts, conclusions that we drew. And then we look at them as if that's what's going to happen or that's what's going to happen to me. And this way in which our mind does this is remarkable and powerful and it's important to start to see, oh, that's what's happening. I'm fearing the repeat of something from the past and fearing that it will annihilate me despite the fact that one way or another I survived what happened in the past because I'm here. And of course, we are impacted by that. Not to take away or deny the fact of the impact. Of course we're impacted. But we've come through in some way or form. And so the fear of annihilation is actually a misplaced fear. But it's powerful. So we need to see it clearly for what it is. How much of our life have we spent trying to avoid what we fear? How much of your life, of my life, have we, have you, have I spent? And of course, I've spent quite a lot. I suspect you might come to a similar conclusion if you reflect upon it. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't a really important place for caution. Of course, there are things that can be dangerous and we need to pay attention and be careful. You know, the word beware, it's like be aware. I think that's a little similar to what we're doing in meditation. Be aware. Oh, what's happening? Caution. I move slowly. Look before you leap into the middle of a road. Is there a car? 
That's intelligence. It's not fear. It's appropriate response. Yeah, that's very different. Fear is where we lose the connection with where we are and we start to imagine and believe that I'm somewhere else where some terrible thing is happening to me. And of course I can't do anything about that because it's not actually happening. Can you see how that works for us? And I'm desperately trying to figure my way out of something that I'm not actually in. So I fail. Because what I haven't seen is what's going on right here. Mark Twain once observed, he said, I think wonderfully, he said, you know, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. But the, you know, and so we say, oh, the anticipation of the bad things that could happen to me, that becomes the worst experiences of my life. So what we need to notice is that, oh, fear, the mechanism of fear is that it tells me a story about the future, which is actually some kind of repackaging of the past projected in front of me. It tells me a story about the future, but it's actually an experience happening right now. It's something happening right here. And here I can meet it. If I'm lost in the story about what's coming, there's not much I can do. But I can feel, oh, this is what happens in my body. This is where I contract or tighten. And maybe if I can make space for this quintessentially unpleasant experience called fear, which is designed to get our attention really quickly, and it does. But mostly we say, I don't want it to have my attention. I don't want to feel it. So I try and figure out a way to resolve all the things in the future that I could be afraid of in order to not have the feeling in the present of fear because it's unpleasant and scary and because I believe it's a premonition of annihilation. There's quite a lot in that. Does it, do you follow? Do you have a sense of that? Oh, okay. So there's this thing that... That's what I'm doing with this experience. And yet... <coughs> I'm trying to control the future so I don't, which I can't do, so I don't have to feel this unpleasant experience that's happening right now. But if I can actually feel this unpleasant experience that's happening right now, which leads me to fear, and it's fear of fear, that I might become overwhelmed or annihilated, if I can make space for this, if I can make friends with this, I don't. So I have to control all the things in the future. Because actually I can meet this experience right here. Huh. That's the resolution to fear. It doesn't mean there isn't a place for caution, as I said. It doesn't mean there isn't a place for wisely recognizing that there might be things we need to set in place or intentions we need to make or plans or arrangements to deal with things that might be challenging and difficult in the future. I'm not suggesting you burn your insurance policies. You know, of course, there's an intelligence and a place for that sort of taking care. That's what we can learn from the past in a useful way is, oh, yeah, I need to take care of certain things. But in the present moment, to meet the experience of fear, it's actually an incredibly enlivening thing. I wouldn't say it's fun, but it's very alive. And it's full of our life force. So it should be. 
And so the sense of opening to that difficult dimension of experience and beginning to bring kindness to this. What does that mean? To experience it in the present and begin to contemplate what's going on here. Because underlying our resistance to the difficult experience is not just that we don't like it. Of course we don't like it. I don't know anybody who likes it. And if they like it, then it's not an unpleasant experience. By definition, that's what we're talking about. Things we don't like. But there's something more that we do is that as we tend to take it as some kind of evidence that there's something wrong here. And particularly that there's something wrong with me here. There might be sometimes we take it that there's something wrong with you or somebody else. Or something out there and the world's gone horribly wrong. And in certain ways it's true, it has. But um, in other ways, actually no. It's just this is how it goes. And the feeling that there's something wrong with me is associated with a sense of separateness, of isolation that's deeply painful. And again, tends to close the heart to not be able to feel the sense of peace or kindness that we actually need to bring into our life. To make the way one that is peace is the way and kindness is the way. So these difficult experiences, these challenging things that we encounter, although for each of us we have our particular story and experience, one of the fundamental truths of our life is that this is a shared experience. It's not just happening to you or to me or to someone else. And there certainly isn't anyone to whom it's not happening. So one of the things that can be really touching and it's reported and reflected and I see and recognize it again and again in small group meetings as we've been having over the last sort of couple of days that we hear each other in the places of struggle and also in places of joy. But we start to see, oh gosh, it's like that for them as it's kind of like for me. Different, but not so different. And we recognize, oh, there's something universal about this. And the implication of this is to start to see, oh, this is how it is. It's not because I did it wrong. Well, they're doing it wrong, uh, you know. So, oh, it's like this for human beings. And there isn't any way around that in life. We're all going to experience difficult things. You know, the Buddha talked about birth, aging, sickness and decay and death. And you think, oh. Ouch, yeah. Everybody that's born ages, gets sick, decays, and eventually dies. It's tough. I don't think many would find that easy. And if we have a heart, if we feel, as we do, because we're human beings, we have hearts. The Buddha talked about sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair. And it's like, oh, ouch. You know, we don't put it on the meditation brochure, come along, you can experience pain, grief, sorrow, lamentation and despair. You know, it would cut down the waiting list, I suspect. But we don't necessarily advertise it in those terms. And yet there's something about that. And the Buddha also talked about, you know, actually just, we might sometimes think, you know, 
It's only because things didn't quite work out the way they were supposed to that I experience all of that. With the body, we get it. But the heart, surely the heart shouldn't have to go through all that stuff. Sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. Oh, surely there's a way. Surely there's a, a magic Hollywood solution that it could just be perfect. But there isn't. And I'll tell you quite simply how I see this. If you love something or someone in this world, in your life, you will at some point be separated from them. Or that. From that personal situation. And that will be painful and distressing. There will be sorrow, pain, grief. And quite probably lamentation and despair. If we love something or someone, we will be separated from them by accident, by intention, by random event, or simply by death. And that will hurt. That makes sense? And you know, if you don't love anyone or anything in this life, that will hurt. There will be sorrow, pain, grief and lamentation in that regard. I don't see a third option. I really don't. I'd be quite happy if someone would show me what it was, if there was one. But I don't see a third option. Either way, this is what it is to have a human heart. And what that means is we haven't done something wrong. We can forgive ourselves and our life for the fact that we feel so keenly and deeply. And this is really important because opening the door to kindness requires forgiveness to ourselves and to the world and to each other for the imperfect way that the whole thing happens. The imperfect way that the whole thing happens. Not just to someone else or just to me, but to all of us, for everyone. And there's a, there's a kind of a perfection in that imperfection that we can't perhaps start to notice if we accept, if we acknowledge that's how it is. Oh, it's like that. Huh. And it's like that because this process is fluid. It moves. The things that we fear that are difficult, that are challenging for us, we don't actually get stuck there. They don't actually annihilate us. If they do, well, actually, in a certain way, the problem's solved. Now, I don't mean to make light of that, but there's something true about that. Well, you know, if it's all over, it's all over. And who knows whether there's something after that. There might be, there might not be. But whatever it is, it's going to be kind of different than this. So we contemplate then these things that are challenging and difficult and maybe they start to fall into place within the remarkable fact that we're here at all. Maybe it's not that surprising that sometimes it's painful and difficult. Khalil Gibran and the Prophet, he speaks of this, he says, if you could keep your mind in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart 
just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. Something beautiful about that image for me, the seasons of the heart. It's like all of us, we love to live in summer. We love to live our life in summer when it's buoyant and full and fruity and warm. But life isn't like that. And sometimes it's winter and it's cold and it's arid and everything seems to have died. And we can know those places in our heart where it just, there's nothing alive in here, there's nothing moving. It feels whoa, heavy, dark, flat, dry, dead. Mm. And yet, if we look, we see, of course, summer can't sustain. It has to fade out into autumn and the slow dying back that ends up in the, in the barrenness of winter. But out of that very barrenness come the fresh green shoots of spring and the new life that emerges, and that flowers into the fullness of summer, and the buoyancy and the luxuriance, and then begins to fade again. Khalil Gibran, he says, you know, you would accept the seasons of your heart even as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. And you would watch with serenity through the winter of your grief. Beautiful phrase again. Just that sense that we could be present through the winter of our grief. And grief is for anything where we've lost what we cared about, not just another being. It can be so many things. And again, that's part of that thing of we care and we lose, and there's no way around it. But could we watch with serenity? Because we know that actually, in some way, we can't predict at a time we can't determine. Life finds its way again, fresh and new. And it does so unstoppably. And from that place, it's perhaps more accessible to us, more, not obvious, but somehow more unimpeded for our heart to open towards those places. Not necessarily easy, but more possible to open to those places that we don't easily open to. And of course, opening to ourselves is the foundation of opening to others, opening to what's here. And this is part of what we're doing. As I, I was saying in one of the small groups today, um, I think it was today, you know, sometimes the conditions are here for us. Things are calm, clear, bright, energetic, focused. And it feels like, yeah, I'm getting my mind on track and we're really doing this thing that we call meditation. That's some of the time, at least for some of us occasionally, it seems. Not that often or that long, mostly. And that's what we think, that's the meditation, that's the real thing. And it's part of the meditation, yeah. It's really important. But often, and I would say in probably equal proportions, what's going on is the conditions are really challenging for being calm, clear, focused, bright, and seeing deeply into experiences with a laser-like steady mind. 
you know. Actually, often what's going on is we're being challenged by what's happening. And rather than seeing that as, oh, I can't meditate, it's difficult, or it's not working, what we could understand is that, oh, this is not the bit about that aspect of the mind. And actually in, in Buddha's teaching, we talk about the heart mind, the citta is the word he used. It. It's that which is affected and responds. So it's sensitivity and responsive capacity that we actually experience through both of what in our Western culture we call the mind and the heart. But the Buddha didn't separate them out as such. And we don't need to, because if we look closely, we'll see they're so deeply interwoven that it doesn't quite make sense to try and separate them out. But we can still talk about them that way. And so with that, there's that sense of this experience of heart-mind that's being touched, that's being impacted, that's sensitive and responsive. I can't quite remember why I went down that track now. <laughs> Minds are unreliable phenomena, and so are hearts at times. So it's hard for us to open with this heart-mind to open, to feel into, to be with such difficult experiences. It needs a, a profound kindness and caring. As we see that the conclusions we've drawn, the beliefs we hold that make us or lead us to conclude that we are somehow different or separate or by virtue of what is challenging for us. When we hold it to ourselves, we easily feel isolated and suffering. And it's interesting that culturally we're encouraged to kind of bottle it up a lot. And when we do so, how we feel so separate and isolated with it. And when we share it with others, how naturally and quickly, if there are people who can simply receive it, they don't have to fix it, they just need to hear it, we start to feel deeply connected. And equally, if someone can share with us theirs, we start to feel deeply connected in that. There's something so beautiful that happens. And again, the gateway of kindness or the doorway of kindness, the heart, just naturally begins to become fluid, to be something that, oh, yeah, we feel with each other. Deep care, kindliness. Because it points to what's there at the core of a human being. And the poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian-American woman, speaks to this beautifully, entitled Kindness. She says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. 
before you learn the tender gravity of kindness. You must travel where the Native American in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Finding in ourselves, as we are invited to do here, the courage to open to those tender places within, to open to our sorrows, our loss, our grief, our grief and sadnesses, not making them the whole of our story, but knowing that culturally we're not, most of us, supported to include them fully and to honour them. We also lose from our life the power they give us, that they open our hearts and they connect us to each other in the tenderness and the vulnerability that they bring. And so from this tenderness connection that begins within ourselves as we allow ourselves to sit and be slowly, in a way our defenses slowly, sometimes it feels like battered down in the process, but in a way it's more softly dissolved. It's the organic process of bringing attention and care into contact with those places from which it has been absent. And it's like bringing moisture into contact with dry, arid ground in which things cannot grow. And it might look like it's dead, but in fact you add a little water, it becomes soft, and a little warmth of friendliness or kindness, and then things start to grow in the place where it seemed nothing could grow before. And we start to recognize that our life makes sense in terms of kindness, in terms of that meeting of ourselves and others in this world from this place of openness and sensitivity and caring that is very much at the heart and the core of what makes us what we are. And so part of this, this process of kindness is, is, is in response to and recognizing the challenge of what it means to be here for ourselves and each other, that we share. And that when we do and when we honor it, rather than taking it as somehow a, a marker of failure or a, a basis for blame or shame, directed at others or ourselves, when we see, oh, it's like this for human beings. 
then naturally there's an openness that starts to come, a certain caring, a wish to look after and support each other, as well as ourselves. It doesn't mean that we somehow make suddenly looking after others more important than ourselves, But we equally don't making, make ourselves more important than others. Kindness has a sort of a balancing effect when it's authentic, when it's true. It's not simply about somehow putting others first. Unless, of course, we never do that, in which case some balance will be found by doing that a little more. But for some of us, the balance comes actually because we tend to always put others first. We've been trained in that rather well, some of us. It's actually part of the whole construct of the, the patriarchal structures of culture that actually, particularly for women, place them in a position where that's how they're validated sometimes. But not just women, it's clearly that, but, you know, in other forms of service, you know, the soldier is validated for the fact that they've sacrificed themselves on our behalf. And when they do, we honour them. If they don't, they're just trouble. So there's these dynamics that we have to deal with that are in this that we need to bring balance to. And sometimes, and for many of us in the West, it's actually we need to start here with including ourselves, listening to ourselves, honouring ourselves as the place from which we establish the template for all other relationships. So sometimes kindness means saying no to other people. Because to not do so would be to fail to say yes to ourselves. If that's what the tendency is. And again, for many of us, that's what it is. If you don't recognize yourself in it, that's fine. Maybe for you it works the other way. But that's not so common, it seems to me. If we're caring people. And as I said at the beginning of the retreat, it's mostly kindly, friendly, caring people who seem to show up on these retreats pretty reliably. And I'd say, um, almost without exception, that's what we find, I find. And I only want to say without exception, almost without exception, because I don't like to make absolute statements, otherwise I would. But there we are. So there's something for us in going into the journey of our life and making it more conscious whereby we also need to honour and validate ourselves as a foundation, as I said. And so there's a poem I'd like to read. And, uh, Mary Oliver, who is one of my favourite contemporary poets. Probably my favourite, but there's a couple of others. There's some good competition out there. Anyway, it's entitled The Journey, and she writes... One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though the melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little as you left their voices behind, 
The stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. And that sense of, for me here of the, the profound kindness and courage, of course, and clarity as well, indeed, in this, of that sense of, okay, this is what I need to do. To do the only, to save the only life we can save. And there's an interesting thing in how there's a separation we need to make between the pressure and the often unconscious and sometimes quite conscious coercion that comes to us from others around us who want us to be different than we are so that they will feel more comfortable. And we can't do that. Well, we can actually, but it doesn't serve us to. And that it's equally about the process of actually freeing ourselves from the voices we carry from the past. That were the voices surrounding us some earlier point in our lives that we absorbed as stories and images and projections about who we are, who we should or should not be. That were also back then laying the foundations for a kind of a pressure to conform to what other people want us to be so that they don't have to feel their experience that they don't like feeling. And of course it doesn't work because they have to feel it anyway. And so it doesn't serve them for us to try and collude with that behavior. And what that does is it starts to set up a template when we see and recognize that for, oh, this is how to hold, not just my life, but every life I come to not to try and coerce it into being other than it is. Not this life that I call mine, if I wish to, which I can, or that life which I call another's, or the, the vastness of life. I don't get to coerce that, but we can save it. Saving it is actually that giving it of space, that profound kindness that allows it to be the way that it is and see where that goes. Even if it's scary, even if it's confusing, even if it's complicated, and sometimes it is. But we don't get to choose where this life takes us ultimately. We get to choose what we make of our, or how we respond to what it offers us. And in that, we learn to kind of hold ourselves and the world in care and kindness and to find some balance there. I, I remember struggling deeply when I first traveled to Asia as a young man with the poverty and the distress <coughs> and the incredibly difficult conditions that people lived in in some, some circumstances. And traveling in, in India where my grandmother is from, I'm quarter Indian and uh, I'd never met my grandmother but I, I spent time there in my, uh, when I first met her in my 20s and <coughs> as well as connecting with this whole part of my family and my 
world I was being exposed to, both also, that's where I found meditation, but I also, this whole relationship to a level of difficulty and suffering that was almost overwhelming to me. My grandmother was from Calcutta and the city of joy is quite a place, quite a place. And there was some part of me that often felt, oh, I so feel like I should give everything to these people that I have because they have so little and I have so much. And you know, I couldn't. I thought I should, but I couldn't. And it took quite a while through the pain of that to realize, actually, I need to have compassion for myself and we need to have compassion for ourselves in the limitations of what we can give. So we give what we can, we share, we do what we can, but we actually also need to take care of ourselves. We can't separate those things out. And yet, taking care of ourselves doesn't have to be in conflict with taking care of others. It's like, oh, we can share the resources we have with others. We don't have to deprive ourselves. And actually sharing our resources with others doesn't deprive us. In the end, it gives us a sense of having plenty, having more when we share what we have. It's remarkable how it does that, but it does. And sometimes we need to get help. We feel like I'd like to help and I don't know how to. Sometimes we need to get help. We can't do it by ourselves. We're not supposed to do it by ourselves. And I had a very touching experience. I was in India earlier this year. My grandmother was turning 100, so I thought, I've got to go. And, uh, and I hadn't been in India for 16 years. That was a long time, and I love, I love to be there. But it's not where I'd been. And after I was with my grandmother for her, for her birthday celebration, I went to Budgaya, where I first my, sat my first retreats, and where I first encountered the Dharma, but also where I had... Just yeah, a lot of enjoyment, this place where the Buddha, or the tree, or the grandchild of the tree, the Buddha sat under when he woke up in his awakening all those years ago. There's a tree there in the place, and a whole world of every Buddhist country and culture sort of packed into a rather intensely overpopulated space. It's not all sweetness and light in Budgaya, but I still enjoyed it. And I had an amazing experience, which I want to share, because... Over the years that I'd been going there, and I went quite regularly over quite a period, there was a beggar there who always touched me very deeply, and I, I just felt my heart very moved by him. And I would always go and sit with him, and I couldn't talk with him because I didn't speak Hindi or whatever language he speaks, um, spoke. Um, but I would just sit and I'd give him some food, give him a little money, but you can't give someone a lot of money because it just... Hey, everyone else looks like they're going to mug them if you do. And um, he was a cripple. He, he had had polio so his legs were completely withered and non-functional and um, he had a little sort of couple of boards nailed together with some little wheels attached that he could push himself around on and there was always something about him that touched me he wasn't it didn't seem quite as desperately in a hell realm as so many of the beggars seemed to be <laughs> he would receive what was given he wouldn't scream or grab or and maybe I liked that because it was a little bit less stressful than with some of the others. But there was also a way in which I could make contact with him. And we'd just sit and just look and smile and just, you know, I just feel like, oh, like I felt blessed by sitting with him. And again, you know, I'd give him a little fruit and some samosas and some oranges and some money. And every day when I could, I would go. 
And every time I left Budgaya, and I did it probably, you know, I don't know, six, eight, ten times, I think, I wish I could do more for that man. But I couldn't, and I kind of had to make peace with that. That's all I can do. I can't even talk to him. I don't know his situation, but I can give him a little food, a little money. And when I came back to India, this, I was going back to Budgaya, I thought, oh, this is going to be sad because he won't be there. He can't have lived another 16 years. This guy, he was old already. And, you know, he's only got a, a body that's so, so, so profoundly constrained. And as a beggar, how could he be there? And I walked into the marketplace in Budgaya, and there he was. It's like, oh my gosh, he's still here. I was so happy. And so I went and got some food, some samosas, and went and sat down with him and just looked at him. And, and then the sadness came in. I, I, I want to do something more for this guy. But I can't. I can't even speak to him. I don't know his situation. And I know that just giving someone a bunch of money is a really bad idea. It's, you know, it's destructive, actually, apart from the potential for aggression and um, threats from around, actually. It, it's just not what's useful for people in a poverty situation. And then I had this radical, remarkable idea that had never occurred to me in the 25 years of my journey with Budgaya, which was, I could ask someone to help me. So I went and spoke to an American man I knew living in the town who spoke Hindi. And he came and we talked. And I found, oh, his name's Sita. Oh, he lives in the village over there. Wow. And this uh, American man introduced me to a, a rickshaw driver who spoke English and... Um, and also Hindi, and me and this young, not particularly well-off man, but slightly well, better well-off than the, the poor beggar, we, well, he picked him up, put him in the back of the rickshaw, drove to his house, found out, oh, he's got a little mud hut with a grass roof, and he's got a sister who's got a family who looks after him. That's why he's still here. He's not completely on his own. He's not at the mercy of the gangs that run beggars sometimes as a financial operation. And so, oh, I can buy some sacks of rice and a plastic sheet to waterproof the roof. And it was just sort of, oh, with some help, we can do more than we can ever do by ourselves. So that sense of the limitations is bound often in our sense of trying to do it alone. And of course, there was a point where he started to clock. He was on to a good thing. I was saying, what can I do to help you? He was telling me what it was. Like, I need some rice. I need some vegetables. I need a roof. And, he was, and I was giving it to him. And then he said, oh, can you build me another room? I'm actually leaving in a few days. I don't think I can manage that. And he said, you know, can you, can you become my ongoing benefactor? And I wanted to. And then I thought about it. Actually, I can't. Because I can't administer the transfer of funds to this person from another world where I live in a way that will actually work. And I could see that he was actually starting to look through the eyes of somehow somebody's going to say, fix everything for me. And the contentment and peace in the man that I'd loved was starting to go. And it's really interesting. If we get too much, we get less happy. It happens to all of us, actually. I've known it the same for myself. And there was just this moment of saying, okay, actually I'll pause here. And I'm hoping that he'll still be there when I go back the next time. And I'm not sure when that will be. 
But there's something deeply healing for us when we find ways to express the kindness that's in our heart, in small ways or not so small ways. Because it actually brings us, I think, into alignment with what is fundamental to our happiness and well-being. The kindness that connects us, that holds the sorrow that also connects us within a, within a sense of care, with a sense of honoring. And that what naturally happens for us, I think, as we deepen and practice, as we find more peace and kindness in our hearts and we open to this connection that's there, the way in which the natural organic movement of kindness that is, as I see it, founded in the, the very nature of what we are, but is somehow constrained by our fear and our contraction and our misunderstandings about life. As they start to drop away, it starts to flow more fully and naturally and ultimately unstoppably through us. We can't own it, we don't own it, but we can align ourselves with it. And in the flow of that, it seems like life finds its fullness and equally its freedom. And this is expressed in a, a depth of peace and kindness. that we can all of us come to know and that this path is a profound vehicle for the fulfilling the manifestation of that possibility. So let's sit together quietly for a couple of moments. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to know and to abide in the depths of peace and kindness that our human hearts can know and can abide in. And may we equally know the fullness of our inextricable connection with each other, with ourselves and all of life. May we awaken to this for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, for the welfare of all that is.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.